This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm joined by the Libertarian Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, I'm here today to ask for your advice on what currency I should put my life savings into when the U.S. defaults on its debts early next month. You know, should we go euro? Should we go renminbi? What I don't know. I don't know where we should head. Now, uh, well, go ahead. I, I asked Richard because uh, right now the president and Speaker McCarthy are in negotiations over the debt ceiling. Right, we officially did hit the debt ceiling earlier this year. But through extraordinary measures, the Treasury Department is able to pay off some bills. We're deferring costs for later. We'll pay them back, assuming we come to some sort of arrangement. So first of all, Richard, um, talk me through uh, where the negotiations are right now. One, why have a debt ceiling? And two, what do you think of President Biden's approach or his ask that we just raise the debt ceiling, no conditions attached? Uh, Well, I'm going to answer your first question first. The answer is the uncertainty level is so high Mm -hmm. that you do under these conditions what you always do, engage in extensive diversification of your assets, uh, both across currencies (laughs) and stocks across different countries and the less. Uh, What you do in effect is you could reduce the variance, but you will never be able to make sure that you're going to be as good after this happens as before. When real wealth goes down, even if people train funds, Money derivatives. If one guy wins, the other guy loses. So it's the net decline in wealth which determines the social situation. Now, how did we get here? I, I think it's perfectly clear how it turns out we got here. Uh, you go back 50 or 60 years ago, and it turns out if you had a political map in which you had a left to right index on one of two indices, uh, aggressiveness in foreign wars is less important, but still there. And the other sort of thing is size of government is a rough proxy for liberal and conservative. You would see a very substantial overlap between Democrats and Republicans. There would be Southern Democrats who would be conservative, liberal Republicans who would be liberal. And that meant that each of the political parties had to engage in a certain degree of internal compromise. And so you get two compromised situations, and then they have to deal with each other, uh, they could kind of work a deal. Uh, But the recent map, I think, is really quite different. It's a map in which every conservative is more, every Republican is more conservative than every Democrat, and every Democrat is more liberal than every single Republican. So that just simply shows that you've got a gap and there's no overlap, uh, but that picture is incomplete because the size of the gap, I think, has systematically grown over time so that the Republicans are on one side and the Democrats are on the other side. So that's the first. Then when you start coming to the way in which these negotiations go, uh, what happens is there's a degree of resentment on both sides. Uh, the Democrats say, you know, Congress passed this stuff. Uh, we have to make sure that the country does not fail. Uh, so therefore, we have to have the clean bill. What the Republicans say is Congress, i.e. a Democratic Congress in a previous administration, passed all of this stuff. We're a Republican Congress, or at least half of it, and we're trying to solve this, and you won't let us solve it. And so what you want us to do is to put off these negotiations until we get the clean debt limit, then we'll have the negotiation. 
And it turns out there are two rather different views of how it is you cut the debt. If you're a Republican, you treat the English language as more or less coherent. And what you say is it turns out that you try to lower the level of expenditures, which will allow you to lower the level of taxes, which will allow you to increase the level of productivity and try to move back to the old Adam Smith program. Broad, flat taxes, essentially, are the way in which to improve the overall size of the economy. If you are a Democrat, what you believe is tax the rich and regulate them to death and then take all the money and throw it into social programs. So the Democrats engaged in a form of debt reduction, which looks as follows. We will increase taxes by $100 billion, and then we will announce a series of uh, spending cuts or, uh, or increases, which are $95 billion. So since we are raising more money in taxes than we're spending in additional money, we can have a big government than we had before and still have debt reduction. I regard that as sheer fantasy because it turns out that when you start increasing the taxes, put the other regulations on, you'll never reach the revenue targets that you want, but you could always, by printing more money, reach the expenditure departments that you want. And so the Republican attitude is what you want to do is have a clean bill and then negotiate over the size of the increase of government afterwards. It's lose for us on the first thing, it's lose for us on the second thing. The only way that we can be sure that the second negotiations are going to be in good faith is for you to do it right now. And if I were the Republicans, I would take the suggestion, June 1st is an impossible deadline. What maybe we ought to do is to say we'll have an interim measure, which will extend it to September 1st to give us the summer to work these kinds of things out. That is going to be most unappealing, I think, to the Democrats under these circumstances, because they've already said in no uncertain terms that every single cut that the Republicans want to make, except perhaps in returning unspent COVID money or something like that, is something which we regard as utterly unacceptable. And so they are still keeping with their program of deficit reduction uh, surrounded by huge tax increases, which of course is what happened in all the legislation that went uh, the previous year when the Republicans hold, could hold no House and the Democrats hold any. So it turns out if you look at these things, each guy has an extremely strong incentive to keep to its particular position. And then the question, who's going to blink first? This is a game of chicken. And what the Democrats will say is, well, the Republicans could have passed the clean bill. And what the Republicans will say, you could have signed the particular bill and done negotiations with us in good faith. A bilateral monopoly, use the labor analogy. You have to come to the table and understand what the other guys are. And it's not a good faith reduction if, in fact, you want to increase the size of government and increase taxes. Uh, you read the papers, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are good exemplars, and it's clear they're in different universes. Uh, Bill Galston, a sensible you know, center leftist, I would kind of guess, says, well, I really don't think that we should do anything other than the clean debt removal. Okay, he says that. And the comments of which there are a zillion of them say, where was this man born? When was he born? What planet does he live on? And then you read the letters to the New York Times, and it's the same thing, only in reverse. So I think, in effect, the gap is very large. That means that probably they will fix this in some way, but it's going to take very long. And I would say there's probably a 15 or 20 percent chance that they'll fail. And I may be being optimistic, you know, but probability is usually supposed to be, you know, relative frequencies of common events. But this is one of a kind situation. So getting the estimate is very difficult. Quickly, Richard, I want to talk through the uh, the proposals that the GOP has offered. Well, they passed a bill, which, of course, will not 
be taken up in the Senate or passed by President Obama. Um, you know, you mentioned pushing Obama? this off. Biden. Oh, sorry, Biden. Biden. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, good old memory lane. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I feel like we, we had a few of these discussions back then, too. Um, yes. You know, you mentioned passing the, or, uh, uh, pushing this off until this fall when, by the way, we have to pass a budget this fall as well. Um, yes. It seems like these same questions are going to come up with the GOP House, right? They're talking about blocking student loan relief that's in the budget. They're talking about adding work requirements for Medicaid recipients, uh, and they're talking about discretionary budget cuts, right? Um, uh, cutting costs yeah. and, and holding growth to about 1% for discretionary budget. I mean, on so, the expenditure side. And... On the expenditure side, right, going forward. Um, well, I mean, take me, what, what do you think about those as as positions, negotiating positions? What, what do you think is likely to happen? Well, I, I think the student loan thing may be solved for them. The Supreme Court may declare the program illegal. But I think that gives yet rise to a yet another problem. If Biden is allowed to do all of this stuff because nobody has standing to stop it, then the constitutional weakness, which I have insisted upon for my entire professional career, that there is nobody who obviously has the power to stop Congress from acting illegal ultra-virus legislation, will become enormous. You'll recall that that was a real issue, and it's still a real issue, in the student loan forgiveness program, who has standing, and the standing cases are really highly contrived. It's almost fictional. My guess is they'll find that somebody has standing, but this is going to raise exactly the same issue. This is a situation that affects every American in the same way, and it's a disaster, right? Well, the disaster doesn't matter for the constitutional provision. The only thing you have to show uh, to beat the guys is to say that nobody has a distinctive issue. And if everybody is affected equally, it turns out that nobody has standing. So they're going to go scrounging their heads trying to figure out who it is that can challenge this thing. My guess is the Republicans and their their, their ace lawyers have already been working on this. They're not going to say what it is. I can't tell you what it is because I think the whole episode is bizarre that a program this large uh, cannot be challenged. Whereas if somebody loses $15 because the government decides to take it away, that $15 loss turns out to be an individual grievance for which you have unquestioned standing and you only have to meet jurisdictional amounts in federal court if they're applicable, which is not always the case. The whole thing has therefore got this complete surrealistic tone about what it goes. Then, of course, you have to get to the merits, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you've heard the 14th Amendment bandied about with great fury. Uh, The real 14th Amendment in terms of traditional litigation has always been Article 1, which talks about naturalization, privileges and immunities, due process and equal protection. But the clause that's operative here is Section 4. You have to explain this, though, because how how can this be used? What's the argument for using this to be able to step, you know, set the debt limit aside? Okay, I will read you the clause, and I'll tell you what it is. It's the validity of the public debt of the United States, right? Uh, Authorized by law, underlined, underlined, including debts incurred for the payments of pensions and bounties for services in the suppression of the insurrection rebellion shall not be questioned. Let's just leave it right there, all right? Mm -hmm. And it's quite obvious what they're trying to say is that these were very controversial expenditures and we're going to pay them. Whereas when it comes to the expenditures made by the Southern states, we're not going to assume their particular debts because they were in the insurrection rebellion. It gives you some sense as to why it is January 6th was not an insurrection or rebellion. The Civil War lasted four years. The insurrection so-called lasted three hours. But the key words that you have to see in this is the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law. How do you authorize the debt in the United States? 
Well, it turns out that the usual rule for authorizing a debt is you have to get some warrant from the Congress in order to make an appropriation or to uh, secure and to borrow some money. Um, I don't believe that the president can go out and say, you know what, I'm going to incur a billion dollars of debt in peacetime and that you have to do it. So we say, no, no, no. So I think it's perfectly clear that Congress can authorize a public debt, which has no particular cap to it. But I don't think if authorized by law has its usual context and separation of powers, that the president can do the same thing. And so he has to go back to them. And even if he has a veto power, uh, the veto power is not going to get him the authorization because the House of Representatives run by Mr. McCarthy is not going to yield to it. So I think the argument is a dead loser. Uh, but what happens is if you listen to the account is they said that the validity of the public death debt um, shall not be questioned anywhere else, right? They leave out those other words, but they have to explain why a debt is going to be valid if it's not sort of approved in the normal way in which debts are generally created by the United States. So I think the argument is a loser, uh, but what everybody else does is they have kind of like tribe, Lawrence Tribe made this rather bizarre argument. He says, when Congress has decided uh, to authorize certain programs, it impliedly has authorized the United States to have enough money to have. Uh, so what happens is authorized by implication by law, uh, but uh, who is doing it? There was no specific ruling on this thing. And what the time this thing was put forward, if you remember, uh, everybody was in favor of having all these soothing words about how it was that this thing would pay for itself by protecting us from climate change and the like. So I think the argument is, again, a dead loser. But if the standing argument failed, and if the Supreme Court should be so inclined to accept the argument, it turns out uh, there's a kind of a general proposition, which is the higher the stakes and the loonier the proposition, the greater the chance that it might be accepted, because you can't count on what nine Supreme Court justices are going to do. So I'll give you another sort of scenario. What uh, is they go in, the court finds they have standing. And then what they will do is they will say, you know what, this is a political question. After all, look at the way they're debating. And then you'll have to go back to the political question doctrine to see whether or not this quote unquote, to use the phrase in Baker v. Carr from Justice Brennan, what it is an intelligible principle that allows it. And the answer is, if it has to be authorized by law, you go back and you look to all the appropriation provisions in Article 1, where it turns out the Congress has a very active role, where usually the House has the whip hand, particularly on taxation issues. So I don't think it works. Uh, but who am I to say? Uh, that is when the stakes are so hard. Uh, if you take the professoriate, right, as a kind of an interest group of one kind or another, um, uh, the politics are perfectly clear. I represent a skeptical group, which has a robust 5% of the academy. Uh, the liberals probably have 75% of the academy. And there are a bunch of other people who are smart enough to run for cover and hope not to make a stand. And so I think, in fact, uh, the political case or the political odds for these bad arguments to win are stronger than the intellectual case behind is the way in which I read the, the current situation. So I think there is much to be very worried about on both sides because this could be, in fact, a classic chicken game in which neither car veers off the road and a head clash 
and destroy everybody so that we would all say, ah, it would have been better had the president yield, it would have been better had uh, the Congress yield, and then there'll be name pointing on what the rest of it is. But what's happening in the United States is the uh, pressure of political expenditures are so such, are so great, uh, that what it's doing is about to rend this country into half. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is a consequence of sort of overplaying your hand. And in this particular case, we know who's overplaying his hand. It's not McCarthy trying to get some modest cuts in the budget. It's Biden who wants to continue to expand, notwithstanding the fact that the ratio of the national debt to the GDP and all of the other indicators of sound currencies point in the opposite direction. Uh, but they kind of like Paul Krugman fans, never found an expenditure that I cannot cover with a bond debt or with a tax, right? Mm -hmm. And if you really start to believe all of that, uh, you'll be right most of the time. And the one time you're wrong, it will be fatal. Fair enough. Two two yes no questions for you, Richard, because I want to I want to just underline this Fourteenth Amendment question because it's it's fascinating to me. The argument they're making, someone would make with to to look to the Fourteenth Amendment to say we can sidestep Congress, is that the the Constitution now through this amendment says debts of the United States shall not be questioned, aka will always be met. And so if Congress won't do it, then, then the executive can step in and make sure that we fulfill the 14th Amendment. Is that That's the right. argument? Okay. Yeah, but it misses the words authorized by law. Sure, sure. Now, their um, argument is, look, this is of a piece. Biden is a great believer in executive orders, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's basically has read the decision in West Virginia, which says that you cannot hide huge programs in executive orders and says there's never going to be a huge program again. So if you look at the recent initiative with respect to the automobiles and fossil fuels phase out, uh, I guess the EPA guy Regan comes along and says, well, we've complied with the West Virginia holding. They're not going to say it doesn't apply. They're going to say we've always done the requisite studies. And you know what? We really think we can take fossil fuels from about 80% of the total economy and 95% of the cars and reduce it to 10% of both in the matter of a decade. And so we're going to decree it, right? Now, my view is what you have to do is to understand that the debt law limitation provision, the expansion of the administrative state through the Chevron doctrine, the extraordinary range and complexity of these executive orders is all of a piece. And the piece is if the president doesn't like Congress, he just ignores them. This is not a separation of powers doctrine. This is an evisceration of one part of the government. And it turns out there is no question that if you're trying to figure out what the relative strength of the branches of government did, a basically a very aggressive president, uh, a very in, divided Congress, as this one surely is, a relatively passive judiciary uh, results in an enormous expansion of presidential power. And that's exactly what's going on here. And if this thing takes off, essentially what will happen is going to be a very rough hold to take back to a smaller government if it turns out that the president is a big spender. So you have two Republican houses in Congress, still going to be a problem. What's that? A loan forgiveness program of $500 billion is like a direct appropriation, save for the fact that you have no congressional authorization. Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, you left something out. I'll just mention it okay. about shrinking the budget. 
you know, we have a military which is in complete disrepair. I, I think that, you know, when I'm with terrible officials, I think um, Lloyd Austin and our Attorney General Merrick Garland sort of are running neck and neck with perhaps the worst, although uh, Janet Yellen may be a close third, right? But we cannot continue to spend how we're spending money on the military or the amounts that we're spending on the military, given the fact that there are flashpoints all around the globe at this particular point. Western Europe is probably on simmer. The Middle East is building up and the stuff in the Taiwan Strait is getting greater. And we can't meet our recruitment goals because of the asinine way in which the military runs its own program. So we have to reform that operation and have to increase the budget at the same time and completely reorient the way in which we spend that money. Uh, so in addition to everything else about where we cut, the Republicans, many of them turn out to be like Rand Paul. They're kind of mini libertarian isolationists. And they say, well, we'll defend our borders, but we don't want to go anywhere else. Well, that got you the Taliban hosting all the disruption in uh, Afghanistan uh, before 2000. And you'll see a reprise of that again. There's no way the United States can withdraw from alliances with the rest of the world in which we have to put up a very large share of the money and the material and the moral force if we want to keep these forces out of control. Right now, everybody's betting on the winners. Uh, and the winners turn out to be an unsavory combination of Russia, who's getting killed in Ukraine, Iran, which is surviving this, China, which may implode on its own stuff. But they are essentially a group of people who have no qualms. They push very, very hard. And everybody looks at the United States. And this is their attitude about the budget crisis. These guys can't keep their soup together in any way, shape, or form. And they are weak. They are ineffectual. The time for us to move is now. And any of you guys who are sitting on the fence, be welcome to the fact that you could always back a loser by becoming an ally of the United States. Western Europe and the NATO alliance will not quite yield to that yet, although they're certainly shaking, but the rest of the world might. And so what's happened is you combine the domestic with the foreign policy, we're in a terrible pickle, and we have a president who's so oblivious of all the dangers that he's created, the creator and not responded to, that he's going to continue to take this extremely hard line position, and he will have the majority of the American public to do it. So if you're asking me a very crude question, who do I think is going to win the face down, I would say the odds are two to one in favor of the president, which I regard as a disaster. Last yes or no question. And uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll no. ask for, I'll ask for, yeah, yes or no. I'll ask for a short answer here, Richard. You know, sure. the government still gets tax revenue all the time. So imagine we get to, let's say it's June 1st um, mm -hmm. around there and the extraordinary measures, uh, you know, can't cover it anymore. And absent anything else, we actually would default on the debt, except for we still receive a lot of tax revenue and we could pay the interest on the debt that we've issued, we would just maybe bounce checks to, I don't know, entitlement recipients or, or you know, to, uh, to maybe on the military side or, or elsewhere. Does that still count as default in your book? Of course, it counts as a default. Okay, uh, you'll default on some obligations, but not on others. Where the norm has always been, you paid them all off. Uh, the hard question that you ask is, which do you default on? Mm -hmm. And the political pressures, of course, will be uh, default on all those abstract decks to become Argentina, right? And then renegotiate your failure. And the financial types who believe in a world order say, those are the first debt you pay. And then you're going to hear people defaulting on Social Security payments, Medicare payments, and everything else. And the entire democratic 
the, the healthcare system and everything else that we have is going to start falling to pieces and so forth. Uh, they may make an exception for essential forces in the state. But remember, there's also a, a kind of a toppling effect here, which is if the federal government defaults on its obligations, it may have made commitments of one form or another to given states and locales. They don't get the money. Their own tax base isn't large enough. And so what we do is we start seeing a default of union workers for teachers, for unions, and for military people, not military people, cops and firemen and so forth. Uh, so there's nothing which says that when the federal government failed, the state governments will remain strong. Uh, many of them do have pretty good budgetary position surpluses, even when they have extravagant expenditures. But these are very volatile, as you well know, because so much of it turns out to be capital gains on the super rich. And when the stock market tanks, California will go from a strong plus position to a strong weak position in one year following, as it were, the Dow and the general indices down. So um, this is fraught with vast implications. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a pretty good sense of what some of them are. So I'm 10% confident that I got 10% of it right. But the rest <laughs> of it's going to be even worse than everything we see. Now, lastly, Richard, I actually wanted to end on a more personal note and talk about our friend John Razian, who passed ah, away good. late last month, because I, I really loved your column in Dividing Ideas, um, remembering John. You know, I met John in, in 2010 when I came up to Hoover for a summer, and then he hired me back the next year full time and was just nothing but kind and, and supportive. So I'm hoping you'd leave us with just some words oh, about, about John. Every time I talk about it, it brings tears to my eyes. I mean, I've had many great deans. And John was never my full-time employer. Uh, but the one thing I so admired about him is he had a very clear vision of what he wanted Hoover to do and the kind of intellectuals he liked to bring uh, to the place. And what he always did is he made you feel more than welcome when he came to you. Because John's general vision of what it is, is he wanted to bring people here. And he used to say it whom I think are old enough so that I know they're internally motivated and they have enough independence of mind that they will do things that will survive me or surprise me. And he always, but always, uh, was wanted to put you in the best possible position, both internals of the institution and in terms of the public life. When I wrote the paper, one of the things I said was John was like Ed Sullivan, a reference which I suspect many <laughs> people today would not get. But Red Sullivan, Ed Sullivan was a columnist for the New York Daily News, I think. He had a stoop posture. He was utterly plastic. He was almost, you know, ashen in his face. He'd get on stage and he'd introduce somebody and they say, ah, here come the Beatles. You know, he lasted for 23 years. And that was like raising. Because what he always did is he put the people whom he introduced first. Mm -hmm. And so when you go on stage with John, you got this gentle little push and it always made you feel that you were going to do better because not only did you want to please yourself, but you also wanted to please him. And he was always like that. He had a wonderful twinkle in his eye. He had many complications in his own personal life that he always managed to overcome. Uh, but you could not find a finer friend or a better administrator uh, than him. I mean, he raised Hoover. Uh, one story um, back in the 1980s when Glenn Campbell was the chairman, I didn't mm -hmm. put this in the comp. I remember coming to Hoover and I realized I was in a kind of a fortified environment because Stanford was the enemy and he was going to keep the walls hot. Um, and I said, this is a very hard place to be with. And so I didn't think much of it. Uh, and then 10 years later, John calls me up and said, I'd like to have breakfast with you someday. And 
I said, oh my God, the change in the character of an institution by the change of a man was nothing short of extraordinary. So um, I owe him an extraordinary debt for my own life. And I'm perfectly confident when I say there are many, many other people who are at Hoover, who have been at Hoover and so forth, who have the same debt to him. He's a force that will be very difficult for anybody to replicate. And he's somebody to which we should give thanks and gratitude and all best to his wife uh, at this particular point. So I'm very much a fan of John Racy. Couldn't agree more, Richard. Well, you've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. If you'd like to learn more, make sure to read Richard's column, The Libertarian, which we publish on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. Now, if you found our conversation thought-provoking or helpful or interesting, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.